everyday theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. With me today on Everyday Theology, um, I have the pleasure of speaking with John Bintal, and super excited. He's a resident theologian um, at Mill Creek Foursquare Church. He's also uh, a professor, all around brilliant guy, and someone to talk about, someone to talk to in light of things that we are uh, probably seeing a lot in church culture now in discussions about prophecies and prophetic and, and what all this is. So, John, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, of course. Glad to be here, Aaron. Now, uh, John, if you wouldn't mind, because I'm pretty bad at introducing guests, to go ahead and introduce yourself much better than how I did <laughs> and let us know a little bit about you. Sure thing. Uh, I live in the Seattle area. I'm originally from Vancouver, BC, but ended up down here uh, down here in Seattle because my wife is from here. Uh, my wife, Kelsey, lives with me here in Seattle, and we have three young kids. Um, I've lived most of my life in, in Vancouver and Seattle, so broadly this sort of Pacific Northwest kind of region, other than a three-year stint that we spent in Durham where I was doing a PhD. Uh, <clears throat> I did my PhD in Old Testament, Hebrew Bible, and theological hermeneutics at the University of Durham, which is all the way up in the northeast of England, yeah. uh, near, near the Scottish border. Uh, One of the, and, the beautiful things about Durham, other than you have to be incredibly brilliant to go there, uh, so that's just proof case for you anyways, <laughs> is I, I've only ever traveled near Durham one time, and all I saw was the church. Yeah. And it seemed like there was nothing else there except for a massive church. <laughs> it is. It's pretty incredible. Uh, the, the cathedral there is is massive and it's beautiful. And I think one of our favorite things about living there was simply that we would so often walk through the cathedral um, as just a sort of mundane aspect of, of everyday life. Because it was sort of right in the middle of the town center yeah. and, and right near where I was working and right near where one of our daughters went to school for a bit. Um, so there's something kind of amazing about about just a, a structure like that, a, a, a dedicated sacred space like that being just part of your regular everyday life. Something we definitely don't have in central <laughs> Florida where I currently am. Indeed. Nor where I'm going in the future. So <laughs> I wish. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your story, though. That's just my no, one no story problem. of Durham. No problem. Durham's beautiful. I like talking about it. Um, currently, I, I have a number of different roles. Uh, I am uh, <clears throat> I'm an adjunct professor both at Northwest University in Kirkland and also at Seattle Pacific University. I've been doing that for the last two or three years. Uh, teaching theology and biblical studies. And I've just recently stepped into a role that, that you mentioned where I'm a, a resident theologian at our church that, that we've been part of for about uh, 12 or 13 years. Uh, so I have a couple of different roles there. As resident theologian, I'm involved in the teaching and preaching ministry and, and kind of uh, have a theological uh, uh, voice in, in that kind of sense. And then I'm also involved in coaching and developing some of the worship leaders in our in our youth uh, in our youth group. So 
uh, I, I've been passionate for a long time about the value and the role of theology in the context of the local church and not just yeah. in the academy. Uh, and so it's been a lot of fun to, to be able to sort of step into a role where I can use some of my academic training and gifts in, uh, in pastoral uh, and, and ecclesial roles. I, I, I tend to wonder what things would look like for the church if there were more churches that took serious the nature of theology in the sense of having dedicated theologians at their spaces. Um, so it's always exciting to see when that happens or for someone who has that kind of role and the kind of impact that can have. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I feel pretty new at it still, but it's really exciting. I think I've spent a, a, a lot of years now wondering some of those same things. What might this look like? And, and now to be sort of invited into a role where we can actually see what it might look like <laughs> on the ground, it's been uh, rewarding and, and a lot of fun and, and really exciting. Well, after maybe, you know, maybe a year or so, you know, we'll, we'll do another follow-up podcast on that exact thing, the role of the theologian in the church, and maybe get a better update on that. That sounds great. Yeah. Sorry sure if I'm already asking you to be on another podcast. <laughs> That's uh, fine. I think it'll be great. Uh, it's like that desperate friend who, you know, has to plan out the next coffee before the coffee's <laughs> even done. Yeah. Before it's even gotten cold. Yeah. I like that. Please come back, please. Um, all right. So, but today we are talking about um, what's really kind of becoming a bit of a series for us at Everyday Theology because of this renewed interest, maybe in uh, prophetic speech, um, mm. and maybe not even a good renewed interest. Maybe even, unfortunately, a kind of negative re- renewed interest, especially in light of things like elections and uh, even natural disasters. But. Um, before we get into kind of a modern day, because of your work, especially within the Old Testament and the prophetic texts, I know that you've got a, a good framework maybe to help people start to think about what is prophecy, what are prophetic texts, and how should we even approach them to begin with? Yeah, yeah, certainly. So this is one of my favorite things to teach when it comes up uh, in, in my teaching, um, <clears throat> as it does in a number of different kinds of contexts. Um, and I think, uh, I think one of the first things to do, as so often when thinking about certain themes within the Bible or passages within the Bible, uh, uh, e- even certain theological themes, very often one of the first things that can be helpful to do is try to identify some of our assumptions and presuppositions and then maybe critically evaluate them a little bit. Certainly everybody will have a framework, a set of presuppositions that they bring to the interpretation of any text or the consideration of any theological category. Um, And so it's not as if we can expect to just be rid of them (laughs) entirely, but we can learn how to identify them and critically evaluate them. I think two of the most unhelpful uh, assumptions or presuppositions that people tend to have about prophecy that are worth critically evaluating, if not, you know, jettisoning altogether, uh, are a broad cultural assumption that basically equates prophecy with prediction. 
This is mm, something yep. that, that, that tends to be present not only within the church, but just broadly culturally. When people think about what it means to be a prophet or what a prophet is, often the sort of knee-jerk reaction is, oh, well, that's basically having to do with prediction, knowing something right. about the future, predicting something about the future, and then perhaps waiting to see whether it comes true or not. Um, within the context of the church, there are perhaps a number of additional um, <clears throat> sets of assumptions that are similar to that or, or, or even identical with that, but then th th there are other layers as well. Uh, in, in my view, within the context of the church, there's both that same sort of narrow cultural idea that, well, yeah, prophecy is basically about prediction. And then in addition to that, there's a sense, especially perhaps within Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, that prophecy would be associated with some kind of personal revelation, some kind of uh, encouragement that one <clears throat> person might provide for another or for a church as a whole, some yeah. kind of awareness of something that, that one person is given uh, that, that other people somehow don't have access to. And so right. in, in my experience, that those tend to be some of the major <clears throat> uh, assumptions that, that, that people have when thinking about the nature of prophecy. Uh, and it can be helpful to kind of, as I said, critically evaluate those and even clear away aspects of them that actually when we look closely at the way that prophecy and the prophetic tradition functions in the scriptures, they actually don't match up very well at all. Yeah, which something that you just said there, you know, this idea of the prophetic being kind of a personal revelation, right? Like this, this kind of like individualized kind of thing. Maybe if I kind of summate that in a, a sense as a perception that many in the church have, it it seems to it seems to me that that, and I don't want to derail us here, but is kind of akin to the same thing that we've seen in church history with the Gnostics or even with people who try to claim power by saying, I have something from God. Mm. I have a connection with God. God reveals things to me. And if you're going to hear those things, you have to come to me. Definitely. Is that, yeah. is that the kind of perception that you're speaking about? Yeah, certainly. And, uh, and actually, yeah, I'm, even as I think about responding to you, I'm, I'm aware that I, I don't want to derail us either. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but I think, I, I think what you're touching on is something, uh, is a sort of phenomenon within the context of, of church history and religious communities that's worth being aware of in any conversation about prophecy, which is that, uh, and this actually, I suppose this could be our segue into talking about what the Old Testament actually reveals about prophecy. But if we define prophecy not so much as prediction, not so much as just having some kind of special knowledge, but if prophecy is fundamentally about sort of speaking on God's behalf or God's words being spoken or revealed in human words for the sake of human communities, um, then we quickly we can quickly become aware of just how easy it is for a claim of prophetic authority or a claim to have or to speak a prophetic word to be sort of co-opted by those who want to use this sort of mantle of, well, this is God's word uh, in order to, um, you know, br bring forward or, or pursue their own, their own agenda, but then give yeah. it a certain kind of divine authority. Which, which for me is, um, 
it's just interesting. I think it's interesting in the sense that, again, I don't want to bring us all the way to the future yet until we hear more about what we need to hear about, you know, the text, the biblical text, the groundwork, the framework for how we think about it. But it is just interesting when I survey and I think about the those who call themselves prophets today. Hmm. There seems to be this continual kind of push towards follow me so you can know the truth. Sure. Or follow me so you can hear that revelation or which will often kind of turn into sow some seed into my ministry. <laughs> Go ahead and donate to what we're doing, right? Like yeah, because yeah. we have the truth <clears throat> and we're trying to spread that truth. So give us, you know, money to help spread this truth. And I it just seems to me, especially when we look at Old Testament prophets, that that doesn't that's not really the formula that right, is right not is at all engaged with right not at all yeah in fact <clears throat> uh in, in some ways perhaps one of the big red flags that should always sort of be there for for any individual or community that claims to be prophetic is if the prophetic claim is made and yet the outcome is self-serving then that should almost always be a red flag that this might not be authentic or legitimate prophetic discourse, but rather one more way that people find to claim a certain kind of divine authority for what is actually yeah. just their own their own agenda. Uh, because certainly when, when we look at the, the Old Testament prophets, uh, w- one way, as I've just said, is uh, w- one way of sort of defining or distilling what it might mean to be a prophet according to the Old Testament is this this a uh, fairly broad notion of speaking on God's behalf or speaking God's words in human words. But there's we need to add to that sort of basic definition that prophecy functions within the context of covenant. Hmm. Uh, and so the prophetic word always has a, a kind of role to play within the context of God's covenant communities. If we look at how prophets are portrayed throughout the Hebrew Bible, these are figures who don't just sort of speak words that have divine authority and then have some kind of benefit for them. They speak words that are oriented toward God's covenant community because they function as sort of mediators or intermediaries. They represent God to the people of God, and they represent uh, the people of God to God. They have this sort of mediating function within the context of covenant community. Uh, So... If we see something that claims to have a kind of prophetic mantle and yet its primary orientation is self-serving or involved in the pursuit or maintenance of uh, political or cultural power or something like that, that should immediately send up red flags where we say maybe some discernment needs to happen here in terms of whether this is, is a legitimate claim to sort of prophetic authority. So when someone claims that a certain political candidate's going to win, and that just so happens to be the one that they hope that wins because the other one's going to destroy the country, we should be a little skeptical? <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so, so when I uh, often when I teach about the prophets in the context of, of the classroom, 
one of the things I like to do is, you, you know how uh, in, in teaching, which which you've done, you've done some teaching as well. So, uh, and perhaps some of our, our listeners have have either done some teaching or have been in classrooms and thought about sort of how teachers are approaching certain topics. Uh, one way of teaching a subject or a topic is to is a sort of more deductive approach, where you kind of uh, set out a kind of logical argument or or set out a sort of logical succession of points, maybe pursue one specific definition and then unpack that definition in certain ways. One of the ways I like to approach sort of thinking through who the prophets are, what the prophets are like, what the prophetic books communicate in the Old Testament uh, is a slightly more inductive approach where we, uh, instead of me just telling my students, well, prophecy is not just prediction. It's actually this much more complex thing. What I usually do is break students up into a number of different groups and have each group look at a different prophetic text. And then each group will sort of tell us, uh, tell the rest of the class based on this prophetic text, this seems to be what a prophet is. This seems to be what a prophet does. This seems to be what the prophetic vocation or prophetic ministry uh, involves. And when we do that, uh, I find it helpful pretty much every time because what students begin to see is a much more complex picture of just narrow sort of prediction of events or knowing something that other people don't know or, or, or something along those lines. What we begin to see is that a prophet speaks on behalf of God, like Moses, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, that a prophet functions as a mediator in the context of the covenant community. Moses, Jeremiah, again, are great examples of this. Uh, also, prophets tend to sort of speak truth to power. They, they tend to have a sort of uncomfortable relationship with the locus of power within the covenant community. So when we see uh, prophets like Nathan interacting with, uh, with King David or a prophet like Amos interacting with uh, the king in his own context, we actually see prophets in a significant, in a significantly sort of uncomfortable and potentially even dangerous role, uh, speaking truth to power, saying things that are relatively uncomfortable, uh, uh, provocative, even sort of critical of the expressions of power within the covenant community. Often, sort of calling out uh, certain things that are uh, that are that are going wrong. Yeah. So in in light of in light of that framework because that reminds me I mean this idea this this way of teaching that you're talking about reminds me a bit of uh the very early pentecostalism that I'm a part of which mm. is this story of um, Charles Parham just telling his students to read the book of acts and try to figure out like all the time that the spirit moves what happens mm. and uh and through that, there's there's some discussion on tongues and and actually outpouring of tongues, right? But but really, it's just that sense of like reading reading the prophets, almost in a sense of an open expectation, other than yeah. future prediction, yeah. and seeing what happens. Um, so, how do we, you know, from all of this kind of framework that you're kind of giving? When we go to read, well, there's, I guess there's two questions really, because especially because this covenant thing, I think is so, let me start there. Sure. When you say, um, 
the, the prophets are always doing this in light of the covenant. Can you expound on that a bit, especially as we think about what that, again, how we can begin to think about that for us today? What would it mean that the prophet is always doing it in light of covenant? Yeah, yeah. I think two two of our best examples for this are are Moses and and Jeremiah. If we <clears throat> if we again l- l- like you're saying, if we actually just sort of go back to the text on its own terms and read it carefully, we will find that these two, you know, Moses is is uh, very much regarded within the Old Testament, within the entire biblical narrative, within both Jewish and Christian tradition as a kind of paradigmatic prophet. And very seldom is he running around making predictions. His 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 primary function in the context of, of, of the narrative has to do with this mediating uh, mediating function within the covenant. And I think prophets like Jeremiah are, are very much their own prophetic ministry seems to be sort of patterned after a paradigmatic prophet like Moses. Yeah. And one of the things that we see is, uh, and, and here I'm, I'm going to use language from uh, borrowed from my supervisor, Walter Moberly, who's written a, a, an excellent book on these things called Prophecy and Discernment. Uh, but he, he talks about prophecy as response-seeking speech. So it's, it's, huh. it's a form of speech that is intended to provoke a certain kind of response. Yeah, And I think that that's really helpful in, in a number of ways, and it gets at this sort of covenantal framework for understanding the nature of prophecy. Uh, because prophecy does sometimes involve prediction. There, there's no sense in, even though there's a sort of narrow, an unhelpfully narrow cultural and even ecclesial set of assumptions that basically just equates uh, prophecy with prediction and reduces prophecy to prediction, that doesn't mean that predictive elements aren't part of the actual nature of prophetic discourse. Yeah. But the crucial thing to recognize is that even when prophetic discourse is oriented toward the future, the the purpose of it is not just to make some future claim so that everyone can kind of wait around and then see if it comes to fruition or, or comes about. The purpose of it is to provoke a certain kind of response within the context of covenant. And so if the prophets are um, proclaiming words of judgment, oracles of judgment, uh, so what, what we might call prophetic critique, the point is not so much just to say, well, judgment's coming, so you better get ready. And then when it happens, we can all, you know, God can just say, well, I told you so, or the prophet can say, yeah. I told you so. The purpose is to call people to repentance. It's to provoke a certain kind of response. Likewise, or alternatively, <clears throat> When prophets are proclaiming sort of hope for the future, speaking oracles of God's salvation, that kind of thing, even still, again, the the purpose is not just is not just to say, well, things might seem rough, but everything's going to be fine in the end, so don't so don't worry about it. Just sort of put on a happy face and be be optimistic. Rather, the purpose is to reveal something about the the certainty that God's covenant people can have in God's faithfulness and in the future that God is going to bring about. But, but to uh, the revelation of that future involves a kind of invitation to the people of God to bring themselves into alignment and participate even now in that future that God is yeah. bringing about. Yeah. Yeah. Which, again, I hate to keep juxtaposing already to today. Sure. But it's just, I think, for, for 
what we see maybe happening, and I say what we see, you know, there's definitely a small segment of kind of Christianity in in America that kind of listens to and pays attention to people who claim to be prophets. But again, a lot of the prophecies that maybe we've kind of seen have been prophecies that have been more like, this is what's going to happen. And what you're saying, especially in light of the prophetic text of the Old Testament, it's it's never, here's what's going to happen. It's, here's what you need to do, and mm. then this might happen, or this yeah. might happen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and in a way, uh, this notion of response-seeking speech suggests that the purpose of prophecy, or at least part of the purpose of prophecy, has to do with uh, provoking you know, God revealing himself or his intent, some aspect of his intentions uh, for the purpose of provoking or bringing about a certain sort of desired response uh, on the part of his people. And if we look at passages like Jeremiah 18 or Ezekiel 33, these texts um, bring that out really strongly. The, the sort of corollary or the, the other component to this that I think is really striking is that ultimately God's intention that is revealed in a number of places within the Hebrew prophets, God's intention is revealed as sort of responsive as well. So he, he desires a certain kind of response on the part of his people, but then God's response also seems at times to depend on how his people, how his, his own people respond. So that it's portrayed very much as a dynamic, interactive sort of covenant relationship. Not quite so much God's going to do this and you're just along for the ride. Exactly. Yeah. And one uh, actually the, the two texts that I studied in my PhD work uh, are Jeremiah chapter 7 and Jeremiah chapter 26. And I think looking at these two texts alongside one another brings this out really clearly. And, and to me, it's one of the best illustrations within the Bible of sort of the logic of God's desire for repentance on the part of his people. Because in, in uh, I won't go into a ton of detail, but in Jeremiah chapter 7, we have what is often referred to as the temple sermon. It's a fairly harsh example of the kinds of prophetic critique that we see throughout the Old Testament, where a prophet is sort of calling out the covenant people of God for various aspects of idolatry and injustice that are running yeah. rampant, you know, a, a broad sense of failure to be faithful in the context of, of covenant relationship. And on the basis of that, calling the people to amend their ways, to, to, to change what they're doing, to, to turn, to repent, right? Um, what's fascinating is Jeremiah 26 seems to portray basically the same episode. It's sort of like the, 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 the temple sermon revisited, if you will. Uh, and yet, instead of just, you know, giving the exact same temple sermon, what we have is a kind of abbreviated version at the beginning of chapter 26 of, of the temple sermon. But then we have this sort of additional insight into God's uh, perspective or additional in insight into sort of God's or Yahweh's uh, intention. Uh just like in chapter 7 in 26 God tells Jeremiah to stand in the um, uh, to stand in the court of the Lord's house or of the temple and speak to the people but then we have this added dimension where 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 the Lord tells Jeremiah do not hold back a word so don't hold back at all it may be that they will listen 
and will turn or repent, shuv, from their evil way, that I may change my mind about the disaster that I intended to bring on them because of their uh, because of their evil doings. And so we have this kind of this moment in chapter 26 where the the curtain is pulled back for a moment. So so what seems simply like a harsh prophetic critique and warning and call to repentance in, in chapter 7, uh, it, it's very much the same thing in chapter 26, but we see that God's heart behind it is not just to say, you know, judgment is coming, you better get ready, but rather to call his people to repentance so that by by their by the desired response on their part taking place god himself then might respond by by, by relenting and and changing his mind and we see similar kinds of dynamics in the language of the book of jonah and in various other places in the hebrew prophets so with this kind of idea of covenant this idea of of a responsive speech in which there there must be something that comes out of what's being said you know how how would you say prophetic speech within the church should function if we if we use the kind of old testament text particularly as a guide towards prophetic text mm. or prophetic speech yeah yeah that's a that's a great question uh, well, I think, yeah, there are a number of things that we would want to consider. I mean, one one thing to sort of to, to consider that might have even come up in the minds of some of our listeners in this context is if we're thinking about what it means to be a prophet in a potentially in a contemporary context or thinking about what it might mean to be prophetic and we're grounding it in the context of the Old Testament, people might think, oh, well, what maybe New Testament prophet prophecy is entirely different. And so, yeah, Old Testament prophecy was one thing, but New Testament prophecy is entirely different. And maybe when people engage in what they might call prophetic ministry today, they, they imagine themselves to be doing New Testament prophecy or engaging in New Testament right. prophecy or something. Because we're supposed to get rid of the New, the Old Testament, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Yeah, like just forget that thing. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I think one of the most crucial things to recognize in pretty much any discussion of how the Old and New Testament relate to one another is to recognize that no New Testament author and no figure that we meet in the context of the New Testament is thinking to themselves, oh, yeah, but we're doing New Testament things now, right? Like these yeah. are people who – one way of understanding what the New Testament even is is – we have people and communities of people who have encountered the person of Jesus Christ and are reading the Hebrew scriptures or rereading their Hebrew scriptures and relating the person of Jesus to their scriptures. And so when they use language about, when they talk about someone being a priest, when they talk about someone being a prophet, when they use any of the language that we're familiar with from the Old Testament uh, or the Hebrew scriptures, our immediate assumption shouldn't be, oh, but this is a New Testament version of that. Yeah. Our immediate assumption should be their understanding of what a prophet is or what it means to be prophetic must be grounded in and informed by the Hebrew prophetic tradition. So when Jesus is referred to as a prophet, people probably have in mind prophets like Moses and Jeremiah that sort of shape <laughs> what that looks like. If the church is pro portrayed as prophetic in the context of a book like Acts, 
this should be understood in continuity with dynamics from, from the Hebrew prophets. If a, a book like Revelation refers to itself as prophetic, clearly it's it, it, it's doing so in line with the Hebrew prophetic tradition, which it's quoting to or alluding to on pretty much every page. Uh, and so I think that's at least one one thing that we need to to uh, to keep in mind. Yeah. So because you've done a lot of study in you know the prophetic texts and and prophets, what would you you know if you ever uh, encounter whether at I don't I don't know if your church is charismatic in the sense of having people who claim prophetic messages. But if you have, if you run across that, what do you, as someone who's kind of studied this well in maybe another very charismatic phrase in discerning the spirits, right? What, what would you kind of filter to kind of go, do you think that's actually a prophetic, prophetic speech or not? Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's a good question. I'll maybe answer by saying one sort of broad framework thing and then talking about some of the red flags that I've, uh, that I feel like are helpful to sort of watch out for. Um, the, the broad framework thing is, is something that, that is already hinted at uh, by the way that you asked the question, which is that we need to always think about prophecy and discernment as um, intimately related to one another. Uh you know, simply claiming to have a prophetic word can't be sort of all it means to, <laughs> to be a prophet. And simply sort of desiring to be a charismatic community that allows for the movement of, or sort of invites the movement of the spirit and hopes for or is open to prophetic words being spoken, that can't just mean allowing for anything that claims to be prophetic to sort of <laughs> have sway or or, 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 or or be immediately taken seriously. Right. Instead, there always needs to be this dynamic of prophecy and discernment. Again, to allude to my, uh, to, to my teacher's book, Prophecy and Discernment, uh, <clears throat> one of the fascinating things that Moberly does in that book is he sort of links this notion of prophecy and discernment to the notion of uh, scripture as divine revelation and then interpretation as our attempt to sort of discern and understand and, and explain what's going on in scripture. So in both prophecy and discernment and scripture and its interpretation, we have this dynamic of a claim that someone has spoken on God's behalf and then an attempt within the context of the covenant community to critically evaluate and carefully discern what has been spoken and how it might inform our faithful witness to, uh, to, to, to what it means to be God's covenant partners. So I think that's, it, broadly speaking, that's one thing that just needs to be there. We can't just have yeah. people sort of running around claiming a sort of prophetic mantle and we go, okay, well, that seems fine then. I guess we need to listen to them. There needs to be sort of ongoing, critical, uh, careful discernment. Yeah. Uh, and then I think features of that discernment um, that, that can be really important can be drawn meaningfully from the Old Testament prophetic tradition that we've been focusing on. So, for example, in my view, one of the one of the big red flags in a contemporary context would be wanting to be a prophet too badly, or <laughs> or wanting yeah. to be interesting. Uh, you know, desiring the the a, a kind of prophetic status 
is an immediate red flag for me, not because it necessarily means this must be a false prophet, but I think that if we look at the pattern of prophetic activity within the context of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, one of the most striking patterns or dynamics that we see is very, very frequently there is a, uh, a kind of resistance to the prophetic vocation. We look at Moses's call in Exodus chapters three and four, and we have this sort of prolonged back and forth between Moses and Yahweh, right? I'm, I'm not the right person for this job. I don't even know how to speak. What am I going to tell the people? How am I going to, you know, and we have this sort of back and forth with Moses saying, I really don't think you've got the right person. And God reassuring him saying, well, it's, I will be your mouth. You will speak my words. You will go where I tell you. And so it's it, it, there's this sort of divine assurance that it's not just Moses. It's God speaking through and and sending Moses. And we see very similar dynamics throughout the, the Old Testament. Jeremiah's call narrative is very much modeled after uh, that of Moses, where we see similar kinds of, you know, I don't know how to speak properly. I'm only a boy. Uh, you've got the wrong person. Or, or, or we look at uh, Amos, who sort of claims, hey, I'm not, I'm not a prophet. I'm not even the son of a prophet. I can't claim some kind of prophetic lineage. But God gave me these words to speak, and so I'm going to try to do so faithfully. And I think that when we see a, a pattern like that, it suggests that you know, it's not that every single person who functions prophetically in a contemporary context needs to be constantly, uh, you know, denying their their prophetic legitimacy or something like that. But I think that there's an appropriate level of sort of humility and reticence and care that seems to go into what it means to be a prophet or, or what it looks like to function prophetically. And if that kind of thing is not there, then our sort of red flags or our critical discernment should sort of come into effect. And we should wonder whether what's being spoken or what's being claimed perhaps has certain self-serving elements to it. So a good question that I think, or, or maybe clarification, especially in light of the Old Testament framework, which I think is really helpful, especially as we think about what are what are prophets altogether, is asking this question: Can you can you practice being a prophet? And I say that in the sense of like if we're if if we see almost a reluctancy towards being prophets because of the the grandness the grandness in the sense of the weight of the role. Is that something to be taken lightly in the sense of like going around and practicing being a prophet like we see some traditions do or even people I have in, in my head in the stories of them of of quote unquote learning to be a prophet over time by mm -hmm. just trial and error <clears throat> and seeing how it works? Sure. Yeah, I think... <laughs> It's, a, it's an interesting question, and, and, it's, and the way you phrased it is interesting and makes me want to say – it makes me want to answer in, in one of those ways that's probably one of the most frustrating answers to any question, which is yes and no. <laughs> I, think, yeah. I think in a sense, certainly, uh, there's legitimacy to the notion that one might practice or, or be sort of formed and shaped meaningfully into what it might mean to, to be a prophet or to be prophetic. Uh, but I think that that can easily be taken in some pretty strange directions. So I, I would suggest at least two things maybe in response. I think that if someone, if an individual or a community uh, 
discerns some kind of um, prophetic call on their on their life as an individual or on their community as a as a charismatic community, then I think it's crucial that one that we recognize. As I've said, there's there certainly is continuity between sort of what it means to be a prophet in the context of the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament and what it might mean to be prophetic in the context of the New Testament. But there are also dynamics of discontinuity. And so to a large extent, the uh, I, I would suggest that the focus sort of shifts from the Old Testament to the New Testament and so that the emphasis is less on particular individuals functioning prophetically in the New Testament and more mm. on the new covenant community at having a certain prophetic function. Uh, there are excellent books on this uh, written by a number of people. Luke Timothy Johnson has a wonderful book yeah. called Prophetic Jesus, Prophetic Church. Roger Stronstad within the Pentecostal tradition has written some excellent stuff on, uh, on, on what he calls the prophethood of all believers. Yeah. And so I book. think grounding the prophetic vocation in the context of the body of Christ can be really helpful, which doesn't mean that individuals might not still have prophetic voices, prophetic words, a prophetic role to play, but it should be discerned within and uh, aligned to, to an extent with what it means for the, the community as a whole to be prophetic. Uh, and then I think along with that, <clears throat> I think that our <laughs> the notion of what it might mean to be prophetic should probably be aligned with something like what Bonhoeffer called the, the cost of discipleship. I don't think that we should uh, sort of just throw out some of the broader aspects of what it might mean to follow Jesus faithfully uh, in the interest of just having a sort of prophetic word uh, to claim. And so when we look at the prophetic tradition uh, within the Bible, what we see is that uh, when prof when prophetic activity functions in a way that might be called false or deceptive, especially in a in a um, in a in a context like the book of Jeremiah, for example, what we see is what what tends to characterize false prophets is that they speak in ways and they speak words that are primarily self-serving or oriented toward their own benefit. So they say things like, peace, peace, God is going to come to our rescue. We don't really need to worry about these words of judgment or prophetic critique. Mm. But they say, peace, peace, when there is no peace, according to Jeremiah. Right. And so their words are sheker in, in Hebrew or false, deceptive. They say things like, oh, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. We're, we're, everything's going to be fine. God would never let anything happen to his sacred space in the context of his holy city. And yet Jeremiah insists over and over that, that no, this you can't just claim that this is God's temple, that this is the, the, the temple of the Lord, and then go about doing whatever you want. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that we see over and over is that sort of deceptive or false prophetic words have a tendency to be to be self-serving. That the, the, the these kinds of prophets haven't stood in God's counsel. They haven't been sent by God, but they're speaking only visions of their own minds uh, and, and of their own sort of dreams and their own desires. And so, <clears throat> I think that if we find 
a, a sort of claim to be functioning prophetically, whether on the part of an individual or on the part of com a community in a contemporary context. If those prophetic words and those prophetic messages are primarily oriented towards sort of reinforcing a particular status quo rather than speaking words that might actually be uncomfortable in the way that they tell the truth or speak truth to power, or if those prophetic words and prophetic messages seem to be primarily oriented toward the pursuit or maintenance of a certain form of, of political power, these should necessarily be significant red flags for us. Hmm. And what should we do? Um, I think that may be a, an unfair question or one without really an answer, but when we as Christian communities come along and we hear such prophetic messages, which aren't kind of in line with at least the framework or the foundation of the way in which they worked within the Old Testament text, what what do we do? What's our response in those ways? Because clearly, I don't think we're going to kill them like the Old Testament says we should, right? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I guess <clears throat> maybe there's probably at least two things that we should do. <laughs> uh, one has to do with discernment, and the other has to do with, with what I would call genuine prophecy. So, <laughs> so in exercising discernment, we should find ways um, within our uh, within our local communities, but potentially, if need be, also within larger ecclesial uh, communities that come together. We should find ways of uh, of calling out what claims to be prophetic or what claims to speak on behalf of God, but in fact is only. Uh, self-serving and and in the interests of the people who are speaking it. Uh, so, for example, to, to, to sort of take an example from uh, from Christian history, when when we have people like Bonhoeffer and and Karl Barth uh, seeing in, uh, in in the German Church uh, a clear sort of co-opting of the Church and the Gospel by the Nazi regime, we see. Uh, we see the emergence of the confessing church as a way of sort of claiming that that this is a form of falsehood that we're seeing and that we need to sort of um, make alternative claims that 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 legitimate that, that more legitimately sort of follow the New Testament witness and, and the gospel. And so yeah. on the one hand, I think we need to exercise careful discernment and speak truth about things that are being spoken that that are not true. But then in addition, we need to cultivate genuine prophetic witness within our local communities and, and within the church that are oriented around the genuine uh, call to discipleship that, that we see in the New Testament, the kind of thing that is oriented toward uh, laying down one's life for the other, the kind of uh, commitment to Jesus that is oriented toward uh, faithful witness and the way of the cross, as opposed to seeking or pursuing or trying to maintain various forms of cultural or political power, and then trying to use biblical or prophetic justification to sort of ground or undergird that. Yeah, that's really good. And, and I think there's going to 
be some processing and trying to think about that as, you know, this isn't, this is a podcast that maybe there's a lot of people who are listening and going, you know, I'm not really sure about what's happening uh, in terms of the prophetic today. It's not a part of their tradition. They may not hear about it, or if they do see anything, they can easily pass it off as being kind of odd or out of place. Um, but I have, a, I have a personal question. Um, it's not really a personal question, but it's just something that I've seen personally that, you know, I, given this conversation, just want to have your thoughts on. Sure. So I had, um, there was a, one of these, you know, prophets making predictions on the election. And so far as it seems, they've been wrong uh, as to the outcome of the election. But their response to being wrong about their prophetic message wasn't, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. The response was actually, well, you don't test a prophet by if they get their prophecy right. You test a prophet by if they have a good prayer life. And tried to use some Old Testament texts, uh, I believe in Isaiah, to qualify such a statement as someone who has spent much of their time studying the Old Testament prophetic text, just what does that sound like to you? What What do you immediately think and respond to that? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'll try to articulate a, a response that's clear, even though it might be a little bit complicated. I think, um, I think on the one hand, there's there's a kernel of truth in that in that response in that the sort of the character of the prophet should probably be part of the uh, the the process of discernment or the framework of discernment with which one evaluates the the authenticity of of, of a of a prophet or of, of prophetic discourse. Um, it's a little bit like Jesus' words about sort of knowing the tree by its fruit. Right. The, the, yeah. the process of discernment certainly isn't completely separated from these kinds of factors. And, and also what it means to be a prophet certainly isn't sort of, uh, you know, completely separate from the character of the individual who has been sort of called or, or the community who has been called to to respond in this uh, or to, to, to act or to function in this way. On the other hand. There is, there's perhaps, and maybe I'm discerning this in this person's response, that there's perhaps a way of suggesting that that actually does drive a wedge between the two, as if to say, well, as long as I have a good prayer life on these terms over here, I can kind of say whatever I want as a prophet, and then people need to uh, take it seriously. When instead, there actually needs to be an intimate alignment between those those things. Yeah. So that the, you know, if there is a crucial relationship between the prayer life or the spiritual formation or the discipleship of the person who claims to speak on behalf of God, and then the actual words that the person speaks, well, of course, we should expect that to be there. But if the words that are being spoken are in support of uh, a form of cultural or political power that is entirely antithetical to the gospel and the New Testament witness, then we should be questioning not only the 
prophetic claims being made, but also the prayer life and the spiritual formation and the supposed Christian witness of that person who's claiming to mm. be a prophet. So in some sense, it's both and. It's exactly. The one confirms the other in both directions. Exactly. And yeah. that one doesn't go without the other in any regard. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. So it's not just that I can claim to have a good prayer life in the sense that I pray a lot, <laughs> generically. <laughs> it's, 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 yes, your prayer life certainly is part of the process of, of discerning whether your prophetic message is legitimate. But what kind of prayer life is it? Is it one that is oriented toward the same kind of self-serving dynamics as your prophetic or so-called prophetic messages are? Or is it the kind of prayer life that is oriented toward uh, becoming more faithful as a follower of Jesus uh, in ways that align with um, with the New Testament witness itself? Wow. Um, John, thank you. You got that it. Was in- it, it was incredible. Um, I think it's a lot to chew on, uh, especially as, you know, this conversation seems to be uh, heating up because of current events. And uh, as always, as Christians, right, being people of of the text, it's always good to kind of go back yet again and think about those texts that should be shaping and forming the way that we respond or the way that we engage. And if, if what we've learned is most likely happening is that oftentimes we're not very good readers of those texts. So we're often not good responders of how we should go. Uh, So it's always great to talk with people like you um, that help us, right? That help us engage with the text betters in more faithful and authentic ways. So appreciate John, you being here. Two questions. Uh, You already kind of gave a little bit of a uh, some recommendations, but if you have any recommendations for our listeners, um, now would be the time. And the second thing is how can people keep up with the work that you're doing? Um, if they want to follow along. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. Uh, yeah, I mentioned Walter Moberly's book, Prophecy and Discernment, published in uh, 2006, uh, which is probably, I mean, I'm biased toward my PhD supervisor, of yeah. course, but uh, but it's probably one of my favorite books on any topic, let alone the nature of prophecy. I also mentioned in the course of our conversation, Luke Timothy Johnson's book, which is excellent. The other two that I would really highly recommend are uh, Ellen Davis, uh, one of the best living Old Testament scholars, um, published a book in 2014 called Biblical Prophecy in the Interpretation Series, which is really excellent and covers both dynamics of Old and New Testament prophetic discourse. And then the sort of uh, um, the, the quintessential book, I think many people would agree on uh, what it means to be prophetic in the scriptures and how it might inform prophetic ministry or the prophetic vocation today would be Walter Brueggemann's classic book, The Prophetic Imagination. So I would recommend any and all of those for folks who want to sort of think about some of these things more. Uh, in terms of my own work, I'm not publishing a ton right now. I've, I've published a couple short pieces on Jeremiah that uh, that have appeared in edited volumes. Um, but a lot of the writing I'm doing and a lot of the work I'm doing right now is sort of oriented toward our own local church. So if people are interested in following what, what we're up to, you could look at uh, our 
uh, our church website, Mill Creek Foursquare Church. It's mc4s.org. Uh, and one of the things I've been doing there that's been a lot of fun is uh, we've, we've started actually a podcast uh as part of the ministry of our church. And so as we've been in a sermon series on the book of Revelation, we've had a number of podcast conversations about uh, about that book. Uh, and so uh, if people are interested, you could go to, to that website and find there some of our podcasts and other things as well. Perfect. John, thanks, man. I appreciate it. This has been uh, a great conversation and a wonderful time. I appreciate you doing this with me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Aaron. It's been great. And for our listeners, I'll go ahead and throw this out there. Now, this is the second podcast that we've had on the prophetic, uh, a lot of dealing with the prophetic texts, but there's going to be one more that will be coming even after this podcast that we'll announce a bit later. Uh, but keep an eye out for even a kind of a third part to this thinking about the prophetic texts series as we move on in the future. Thanks everyone for listening. Mm-hmm.